Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm your host, Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with someone who was pretty much born to be a songwriter. Brent Cobb grew up in Ellaville, Georgia, where he was encouraged by his parents, especially his songwriting father, to pick up a guitar. Following the advice of Luke Bryan, he moved to Nashville, where he used his talent to write hit songs for everyone from Kenny Chesney to Miranda Lambert. But now he's known as a Grammy-nominated artist and performer all his own. In 2022, he produced a gospel record based on a lot of the music he grew up with in the Baptist Church. And now his latest album, Southern Star, stands as a tribute to both his small-town Georgia roots and the people he's lost. We'll talk about all of that, as well as his holiday traditions, his take on the state of country music, and why he loves soup so much it earned him a nickname on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Brent Cobb, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So where is here exactly? Where am I reaching you right now? I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm in the basement of the theater that we're playing, the Jefferson Theater. Yeah, we're on the second leg of the Southern Star Tour. We had about 10 days off after a month long of the first leg, and now we're back on the road for another month. That's great. That's great. Well, I want to go back to your hometown for a minute, Brent, and just talk a little bit about where you grew up. You grew up in a, in a town called Ellaville, Georgia. Am I saying that right? Ellaville, yep. That's correct. So not too far from Columbus. That's right. So tell me a little bit about that town and the house where you grew up. Well, I always say that I was born in Americus, Georgia. I grew up in Ellaville, and I was raised in Richland which is Jimmy Carter country, 10 minutes down the road from Plains. Grew up going to country days, playing street dance every year. I grew up in a single wide until I was 10 in the back of a peanut field. And then we graduated to a double wide. And then my parents purchased the nice brick home when I was about 15, right on the outskirts in Sly County there, right outside of Ellaville. And Ellaville itself is your quintessential small South Georgia town, you know, one red light. My Spanish teacher in ninth grade, Dr. Lopez, he was telling us that Ellaville actually in Spanish translated to small town. Ella. Oh, really? (laughs) Ella is petite and feminine, and then Villa is town. So it is actual small town. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Population 1,609. Okay, so not tiny. There's a few folks living there. Yeah, there's a few. Is there a lot of farms around there? Oh, yeah. Where I grew up, again, we're about five minutes outside of town and surrounded by peanut fields or cotton fields or corn fields, depending on the year. Just real rural, a lot of dirt roads, you know, just kind of what you would imagine in southwest central Georgia. And what did your folks do for a living? My dad, by day, is an appliance repairman. He's on his own appliance repair business for the last 
30, 35 years. But on the weekends, he's also a musician. He's a great singer and entertainer. I did not get that gene. I only got the songwriting gene. But he would play and still plays most weekends as a source of a secondary income. And then my mom was a cosmetologist for the first few years of my life. And then when I was in about seventh or eighth grade, she went back to school to become an RN. And she was a nurse, night nurse, during my whole high school career. And now she works in long-term health care. Okay. That's great. Mm-hmm. Well, I've read a little bit about your dad and the fact that, you know, he is a talented musician. What's your relationship to him when it comes to music? Oh, well, a lot of fathers and sons may be mechanically minded and they spend their quality time building an engine on an old truck or something. And me and my dad always, my whole life, spent our time talking about songs and listening to radio shows and picking and grinning and we bonded over music, still do. That started pretty early, right? That started when you were in for sure little kid. Yeah, single wide walls are thin, and I can remember hearing them even after I'd go to bed. My dad writing on a song. He would always include me. He'd ask what I would think about this song that he was working on, or we'd record into this little recorder, and he'd have me sing. He wasn't molding me to do anything. I just was interested, you know. He'd leave a guitar lying around, and never was off limits. Like he always felt like if a guitar is there, it's to be used. It's not to be hung up. All my life, it was always accepted and encouraged, and it's just part of our relationship. And to this day, do you still kind of, I don't know, bounce songs off of him, bounce lyrics off of him, that kind of thing? For sure. When I started really writing songs, you know, serious songs when I was 12, 13, that I was trying to craft. He was one of the first people that was like, you got to give it a double meaning. The best songs always have a second meaning below the surface. And then since we moved back to Georgia in 2018, I lived in Nashville for 10 years and then L.A. a couple of years before that. And then when my daughter was born and I started touring again, me and my wife relocated back down there. So I co-write with my dad a lot. I co-write with my wife a lot because I'm not in Nashville on Music Row writing with a bunch of other co-writers. And so it's real natural because it's really something that we kind of always did. Yeah. It's such a part of the Nashville culture that everybody is co-writing all the time, isn't it? You know, specifically Music Row and staff writers. You know, if you go the publishing deal route, Roger Miller did that and Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton and a bunch of them, most of my heroes. The way that it works is you get a publishing deal and those publishers introduce you to other publishing companies, writers, and then you get together in a room and you know, 9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning and write for a few hours, and you get paid a draw to do that monthly. And with hopes of landing a cut on a radio artist's album, I suppose the co-writing game is really just to better the odds. And back when people still bought albums to hopefully line everybody's pockets, I suppose. <laughs> I didn't catch that part of it. But, <laughs> uh But yeah, it's still going on. It's still a thing. I signed my first publishing deal in 2009. And those first two years, I wanted to write, co-write. I wrote, you know, doubles and triples every day, seven days a week, around the clock for two years. I just couldn't believe that I was finally getting paid to do that. I wanted to learn and write with as many folks as I could. It's great training. I mean, just to get in the habit of doing that all the time. One of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got early on was from Luke Bryan. 
and he had invited me to stay with he and his wife for a week between me living in L.A. and then me actually moving to Nashville. And then when I moved there in 08, I was working at Walgreens and developing pictures. I was a photo specialist, they say. And I called him one day. I was like, man, what am I doing? I could be doing this back home, you know, working at Walgreens. I didn't move here to do this. He said, well, buddy, you need to just write and write and write and keep writing. And you're going to develop a whole well of songs that someday you'll be so busy touring and making albums that you won't have time to write the songs. But luckily, if you go ahead and just write them and write them and write them, you'll have a whole bag to pull from. And he was spot on. I still record songs I wrote 10 years ago, you know. (laughs) That's great advice. So, Brent, I know that you're interested in food. And I always talk a little bit about food on this show. Who was a cook in your family? Everybody. So my mom is from Cleveland, Ohio. And she moved to Georgia when she was 17. So she didn't really grow up cooking Southern food, but she may be the greatest Southern cook there is now. What do they call it? They call it a damn Yankee, right? Someone that moves from, from the North and then like becomes, she might even talk more Southern than I do. She and my dad, both of them are really, really great cooks. So give me some examples of a couple of dishes that, you know, kind of make you think of home. A good pot of vegetable beef soup with some cornbread on the side and the okra in what, the last five minutes. You don't want to overcook the okra. You know, beef, brown gravy, onion gravy, mushroom gravy. I'd eat it on tree bark. <laughs> uh, red-eye gravy. I love gravy. We do this venison sausage and potato soup, and it's real mm-hmm. good. I like soups. They call me Super Boy out here in the band. <laughs> Because I love soup so much. (laughs) Well, Uh, it's soup season right now, so you must be excited about that. So what about on the road, Brent? You spend a lot of time on the road. When you think about southern towns or cities that have the best food, what are some of the places that you look forward to the most? Man, there's one place that's not very far outside of Nashville. It's right before you go over Mount Eagle Mountain. There's a place called Simply Southern. And it's owned and operated by these three sisters. My old drummer, Herschel Van Dyke, played with me for three or four years. It's from that area. But he knew that whole family. And that's how we started going there. I still hit it anytime I can. You walk in, and it's just like you walk in your grandma's kitchen. They have kitchen tables set up, and it's it's just simply Southern. Everyone should enjoy that sometime. There's another spot in my hometown, Americas, where I was born, Gladys's Kitchen is the greatest Southern cooking restaurant. My wife makes fun of me because every time I go, I travel for a living. I eat all over the place. I'm telling you all, there's no place better than this one right here. (laughs) They're the reason why I started liking turnip greens. I didn't like turnip greens growing up, but their turnip greens tasted like fried chicken. I would just get a plate of turnips with no meat or anything because they're so good. Well, the name alone, Gladys's Kitchen, I mean, you know it's got to be good. Absolutely. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard of the, I didn't know this was like an old Southern standard dessert, but a butter roll. Have you ever heard of that? I've had a lot of rolls with butter. It's they- not what you think, though. It's not like a roll with butter. It's a dessert, like bread pudding almost, huh. but not. And it's in this like sweetened broth. It's like <laughs> a little bite of heaven, my wife says. I'll put it on the bucket list. Well, so, Brent, I want to talk about the holidays for a second. You know, this episode is going to come out right around the holidays. And as someone who grew up in this musical household, what did Christmas look like for y'all? 
probably the way you would imagine. My sister and I could never sleep. We would get up real early, like four or five, three or four in the morning sometimes, and the sun would not have come up. I'm sure my folks had just got finished, you know, helping Santa put gifts under the tree, and we'd wake them up and... Yeah, you know, we did a little picking, then we'd go over to my grandma's house and sit around the fireplace, and people drew names, because my dad has such a big family, and then I got a lot of cousins that people would draw names at Thanksgiving to pick gifts for whoever name they drew for when Christmas came, and so we'd open gifts there, and then do some picking, and then go to my nana's, my mama's mama, and again, break out the guitars. My Nana never played, but she loved music so much and she was a dancer. And so we'd play for her. We couldn't go over there without her getting my dad to sing some. So music's just a part of everything. Everything. Are some of these original Christmas songs or just more, you know, traditional? Mainly standards. I'll have a blue Christmas. Yeah, my dad can wear it out too. He's real good at it. (laughs) Now you've got a couple kids. How old are they? Nine and four. Okay. So what about Christmas traditions in your house? So when my wife and I got married, her mom and dad would host a Christmas morning brunch at their house with their whole family. And and then my family, of course, started joining in. My wife's family is not musical at all. They love music, but they're not musical. And so when we married, my pa-in-law, he's like a John Wayne type guy, you know, and he loves music so much. And when we got married, it turned into now everybody comes. We have folks that aren't even in the family that will come to the house because me and my dad and some of my wife's cousin pick a little guitar. And we just sit around the living room, the den, and my kids are running around with their little cousins. And we're singing all them standard Christmas songs and drinking some eggnog and, you know, just kind of what you would imagine. Okay, so we're also... In the middle of football season right now, were you raised as a Georgia Bulldog? I'm a Bulldogs fan. I will say that in my household, we never followed football. I did a thing with Whiskey Riff the other day, and they asked, are you a fan of football? And I was just like, I like chicken wings, and <laughs> I like fall, and I, and I do like the dogs, though, yes. Yeah, but it's not a complete obsession like it is with some folks. Music is the obsession, I suppose. After the break, I'll talk more with Brent Cobb about his recent gospel record, his new album, Southern Star, and the country music that inspires him. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with the singer-songwriter Brent Cobb. Well, so, Brent, a couple years ago, you did a gospel album. It's a beautiful album. It's called And Now Let's Turn to Page, dot, dot, dot. Uh And it's a lot of songs that you heard in church when you were growing up. Tell me a little bit about the church where you grew up. What did it look like, and what did it sound like on a typical Sunday? It's Antioch Baptist Church, and it's in Webster County. It's the little old country church you know it's very small it's all family for the most part that went to the church there's only probably let's see 12 pews you know six on each side we didn't have air conditioning we didn't have any air or heat when i was growing up there well i guess maybe we had some space heaters in there but it was all fans circling up top and there'd be wasps in the summertime to be hovering around because we had the windows open and then, of course we had the church fans Brother Spivey was our preacher. 
My grandma, though, was running the show over there. And my grandpa, he led the singing. But he wasn't really a singer, but for some reason he led the singing. My dad leads the singing now. It's just your small little country Baptist church out in the middle of nowhere off Seminole Road. Well, uh, the music must have been pretty good to have had such an impact on you. I call that album the Southern Gospel Greatest Hits. Yeah. Because if you picked one that was too obscure, there would be no singing. And everybody would just be kind of mumbling through. And so you have to always include an old rugged cross or something like that in there. To yeah. make sure that we were that we were all fully singing. Everybody would chime right in, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you recorded this, I guess, two or three years ago, and I imagine that you're at a stage in your career where, you know, the career's been going great. You must be getting a lot of advice from some people who were a pretty big deal in Nashville. What did they tell you when you said you wanted to make a gospel album? I mean, do they see that as a, you know, yeah, it's a great idea for your career right now? Or were there people saying maybe you ought to wait a little while? Well, the timing of it really couldn't have been any better as far as doing something that I wanted to do because I had recently bought back my masters to the very first album that Dave and I did from 2005, 2006, No Place Left to Leave. And I had just re-released that. It was the first release that I released through my own imprint label, 330 Tigers, Old Buddy Records. So we put that album out, and then that album paid for Keep Em On Their Toes. And my manager at the time, Don Van Cleve, I remember hit me up about, hey, you need to be thinking about maybe going in the studio. It's been a year, year and a half, whatever it had been. I got a ton of songs, but I don't like to go in and just record random songs for no reason and just throw 10 songs together, even if I have hundreds of them to choose from, like we was talking about earlier. <laughs> uh, they still have to make some sort of sense, you know. And uh, so I always wanted to make a gospel album because people like Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, and all my heroes, George Jones, Elvis, all made gospel albums at some point in their career. And really, nobody gave me any flack. I remember the last week before I went in the studio to make it, I was doubting. I was wondering, man, am I making the right decision to take this little bit of money that I have finally made and go make a gospel album? (laughs) And I hit my old manager, Don, up, and I asked him that. I said, is this a dumb move to make? And he said, well, let me tell you this. You're taking the money that you've made off albums that you own to make another album that you're going to own. And if that's what your heart's telling you to do, that's how you get rich. (laughs) And I wasn't doing it to get rich, I promise you that. But spiritually, you know, I feel richer now doing it. I'm glad that I did it, and I'm glad that me and Dave were able to make that album together. Dave and I had not worked on an album together in a while, and so when I texted him, it had been a while since we talked, and I said, so when are we going to make the gospel album? And all he responded is, our family would be so proud. And it just made sense. Something that had to be done. Oh, they must have just loved it. They must have been so excited about that. Yeah. There's a great song on there called When It's My Time. And you have all these classic old gospel songs. And then this is one that you wrote. But in some ways, it sounds to me like it could have been written 100 years ago. Oh, man. Um, what was on your mind when you wrote that one? Well, a couple things. 
there was my grandma. She kept me and my cousins often on the weekends when my dad and my uncle would be playing in their band. And so she'd keep me and my sister, and she'd also keep my two cousins. And so it'd be a house full of kids running around, and then people would come over on Sunday, the whole family. So there's always so much going on in the house. And now that everybody's grown and my grandpa's passed away, I just was thinking about, you know, the house is not as full and there's not as much going on. And grandma is one of the toughest people I have and will ever know. So she doesn't get necessarily emotional openly or anything. She don't care. But I thought it'd be cool to take the kids over there. And, and she was so happy to have us. And while we were there, somehow we got to talking about life and changing and people passing on and all that. And, and I asked her something and she's like, well, it's not up to me. When it's my time, I'm going to go. And so she's not scared of it. And so me and my wife were sitting on the back porch and we were talking about all of that. And then Mike of Mike and the Moon Pies, they had just lost one of their longtime roadie guys. Uh, I was thinking about him. When it hit me on the back porch, we wrote three verses in 30 minutes, probably, me and my wife. And I knew that it was a big song. And then I hit Mike up and asked, sent him what we had wrote. And I knew he was going through that at that moment. And so he wrote a verse to it. There's like eight verses to that song. And we only included three or four of them. I appreciate you noticing that. I'm proud of that song. And it was the last song that we recorded for the gospel album. Dave and I were going through the old Southern gospel greatest hits and trying to decide what we should include on the album. And I had most of them. And then we got to that ninth one and it was like, I don't know, you know, we could do this one, we could do that one. And I said, well, you know, I got this one song that I just wrote. And he was like, that's a gospel song. Why in the world aren't we recording that for this? And so that's what we did. Well, it's a beautiful song. It really is. It kind of gives you chills, and I think people are going to be listening to that for a long time. Thank you. Brent, I want to talk about your new album. It's called Southern Star, and I suppose it sounds a little more upbeat, perhaps, and a little more hopeful than some of your other work. Is that fair? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I Maybe. It's definitely breezy. Well, it's got a great feel to it, particularly the title track, which is kind of this love letter to the South. I'm just wondering if that had something to do with your move back to Georgia. You know, you lived in Nashville for a decade or so, and then you moved back to Georgia with your family. Did this relate to that move at all? Partly. So my buddy, Rowdy Jason Cope of the Steelwoods, he had passed away unexpectedly yeah mm -hmm. it was uh he was the guy in my life that when i moved to la he was from black mountain north carolina eight years older than me and had been out there doing it for eight years or so and i think he was just so happy that there was another southerner that was finally out there in la with him that he really just took me under his wing and helped show me the ropes and i mean 
started teaching me how to really study songwriting and really pick it apart. But then also he taught me how to grocery shop. He taught me how to do coin laundry. You know, he helped me grow up in this bigger world. He played with Jamie Johnson for six years as a guitar player. And then he started, of course, the Steel Woods. And he was my brother that I could call on my six-hour drive from the end of a tour. I'd jump in the truck and drive six hours home. Or to get on tour, I'd drive six hours from Georgia. It's my only time alone. But I would call Rowdy on those drives, and we'd talk about the business, and we'd vent to each other. Because I can't just call my buddy back home and have any kind of complaining to do about playing music on the road. You know, because, <laughs> you know, they're out there, you know, linemen you know what i mean they're like oh they wish they could be doing that yeah right (laughs) yeah and so me and raddy would talk for two hours so when he passed i was thinking about him and how much influence he had on a lot of the independent country music that is of recent years flourished and people may not even know that he had that influence and i was thinking well man he may not have been a superstar but if nothing else he was a southern star and then I was thinking, as there was this old place that we used to go during the Jamie days, which over some dark days a little bit sometimes, but uh, he lived in Bell Buckle, about 45 minutes or so southeast of Nashville. And I'd go down there and we'd hang out and we'd go to this little tavern. It was a little seedy, you know, and it was, well, we'd go hang out there for a little while. And we'd go back to his place and listen to Towns Van Zant and Waylon Live. But that place was called the Southern Star. And so it was those two things. But then also when I was in L.A., you know, you always hear if you get lost out there in the woods or something, then you look for the Northern Star to give you direction and guide you back home. But I was from South Georgia, so I looked for the Southern Star. I tried to put all of those meanings in there. Yes, it's a love letter to where I'm from, but it, I try to be universally personal or personally universal. You know, not so different from Dolly with Tennessee Mountain Home album. It's yeah. so personal. All those Everybody stories, relates to it, yeah. But it's universally personal. That was the goal with that song. So is the album kind of a tribute to him? For sure. The whole album is, absolutely. Yeah. The last day of recording. We had nine songs recorded and I'd recorded all the songs that I knew needed to be recorded for the album, but I wanted it to be a 10 song album. And I couldn't figure out that last one. And the morning I was getting ready and everything was good and there was no problem or anything. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, I just got crazy emotional. Like it wasn't even about anything. I don't even know what happened. And it occurred to me that I needed to record this song, Miss Ader, that Sally J, who's also from Georgia, had written and recorded in 2006, and Rowdy played on that album. My first trip out there, I was too young to go in the bars, and she was having a showcase for her album, Amarillo. And in order to get me into the hotel cafe, she asked if I would sell her merch that evening, and I had never even sold merch. But then Sally and her mom was out there, and she was super Southern from Sylvester, Georgia. And they knew how homesick I was. And her mom cooked us a big Southern fried chicken and greens and gravy and mashed potatoes to like comfort me. And it was such, again, uh, a light of a Southern star in this timeline of my life. And so I knew then I had to record, that was the 10th song. Well, on the way to the studio, it's on a Sunday and there's no cars out because everybody's at church, you know. 
And in the middle of the road, hovering over the road, is a silver star balloon. I was like, all right, Ralph, I hear you. So that's the last song that I got to <laughs> put on there. Wow. That kind of gives me chills just hearing that. Me too. He was he was speaking to you. <laughs> Absolutely. There's so many good songs on this album. I want to ask you about one more called When Country Came Back to Town. I love the video of this, too. You're kind of a gray-haired old man, and you're sitting on mm-hmm. a couch, and you're reading the story to a couple of kids. My grandchildren. And, and you're talking about all the artists who kind of put the country back in country music. Do you feel hopeful about where country music is going? Yeah, that song, more than anything, is a celebration in the rise of independent country artists, you know, because I came up in a time, again, it's the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006. If you were doing anything that wasn't of the huge commercial country radio format and you were trying to do something independently without a label, you just could barely be heard. There was just no way to be heard. And so over the course of nearly 20 years, I have watched one artist lead to another in real time. In like I was actually there physically, you know, and I feel like I have a unique perspective on where we are now. It gives me hope that obviously independent country artists can be heard now finally, thank goodness. But there was a lot of people who laid that foundation down. And I thought it was important to tell that story. I was there when Shooter was putting the O back in country, and that led to Jamie doing his Lonesome Song album. But then I was also there for the bro country thing that was happening. And I You've was friends with it, Luke. Yeah. And yeah, I was there for the whole thing. And <laughs> and it's been such a debate for so long. Like, what's country music? Is that country music? Well, just like the chorus says, maybe it left, maybe it didn't, maybe it was found. Who really knows? But I do know that some good things are happening now. You know, I'm glad that I'm around. Some say it never left. Some say that it got saved. Like everything, it changes over time Well, all I know for certain Is I'm glad I was around When country came back to town Oh, when country came back to town Well, you're certainly not doing the bro country thing, but at the same time, you've been on the road playing in front of some huge audiences you were touring with luke combs what are some things that you've learned from luke as an artist and a performer man it's hard to answer that question because it sounds like i'm being boastful or like i'm bragging or something but in 2014 i got a call from a buddy of mine from ellaville andy miller who i had talked into moving to nashville and at this time my daughter had just been born so i wasn't touring at all but andy called me and said 
man, there's a singer that just moved to town from North Carolina, and he's a fan of your music, and he just wants to, like, hang out and have a beer and ask you questions. Would you be into that? Because at the time, I'd already been doing it for a while, you oh, know, well. almost 10 years. And I said, well, I don't know what advice I can give him, but sure, I don't. I can, I can drink a beer with him for sure. And it, it was Luke Combs, and he came in, and we went to Broadway Brewhouse. And we ate some jerk chicken and we drank some beers. And he asked me questions about songwriting and, and just playing shows and all that stuff. I think back now, I was so focused on how good that jerk chicken was. But then I think Luke was focused on taking over the world because <laughs> he wound up doing it. You know, he's the only artist that I have watched every step of the way. Like that day, I dropped him back off at his little crappy apartment in Hendersonville. And then, uh, a couple years later, I had recorded Shine on Rainy Day, and I was in New York, right in the middle of Manhattan, and I was negotiating my own record deal with Atlantic at that time. And Luke, while sitting in this hotel, he sends me his SoundCloud link to his album that had Hurricane on it. And I said, well, you showed me yours, I'll show you mine. And so I sent him a SoundCloud link to Shine on Rainy Day. And, of course, his went on to just explode, and he becomes this worldwide superstar. And mine got nominated for a Grammy. Yeah. But, uh, and, uh, <laughs> not and so too then, shabby. Not too shabby not, there, Brent. No. Well, but, and it, <laughs> I saw him have this apartment in Germantown, and now I've been out to his amazing property outside of Nashville. You know, it's just watching, and I root for him, if nothing else. Well, Brent, I just have one more question for you, and I feel like we've kind of been talking about this the whole interview, but what does it mean to you to be Southern? I think that sometimes you rock, and sometimes you roll, and sometimes you're a little country, and sometimes you're a little soul, and it's all Southern. There's a reason why people who aren't from the States, when they come to the States, there are specific cities that they want to visit. They want to visit New York. They want to visit L.A. Uh, and maybe some other places in between. But then they also want to visit the South as a whole. I don't know what it means to be Southern. I just am. And I'm grateful for it. And it's complicated. It's complex. It's simply complex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sure comes through in everything you do and... I just want to say congrats on all the new music and the tour and everything you're doing. Thanks very much. It's great stuff, and I uh, can't wait to hear more of it. Brent Cobb, thanks for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Brent Cobb. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And as always, we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find an archive of every episode at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be talking with the world-famous chef Emeril Lagasse and his son, EJ, who's taken the helm of his father's flagship restaurant. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.